Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Romans 7 is kind of a difficult chapter to go through. It's, it's one of those where people kind of go through Romans 6, and it's great, and then Romans 7 kind of slows you up a little bit, and then you go to Romans 8, which Romans 8 is a great, great chapter in the Bible. But I think it's important that we go through chapter 7 because there's a lot of important truths that we find in chapter 7, because many people think that these verses in chapter 7 are confusing, and they're very hard to understand, and you'd be right. In fact, some people say that you ought to just, like I said, go from chapter 6 to chapter 8 because it'd be a lot better. But I think every verse and every word in the Bible is inspired of God. So we need to take a hard look at it and see what God has to say, because I know that there is something there that he'll teach us. So let's take a look, take a look at that. Chapter 7, verse 1. And you have to understand that Paul has been comparing and contrasting in the previous six chapters. And he has been comparing a non-Christian or a person before Christ to what it means to be a Christian. And he has used a lot of different analogies. And he has said, well, a person who is not a Christian uh, is associated with Adam, as we learned before. Um, But now that we are Christians, we are not in Adam, but we are in Christ. And he has used this analogy of a king ruling over his subjects. Uh, He has said before you become a Christian, sin is like a tyrannical king who reigned over you. Now, however, you have a new king, King Jesus. And he has already used this example of a master over a slave. And he said before you were a Christian, it was like sin was your master and you were a slave to sin. But now you have a new master and you are a servant to Jesus Christ. Those are the three main analogies that he uses in chapter 1 through 6. Well, he's going to use this analogy again, and he's going to compare a person who is not a Christian, like someone who is married and it's a bad marriage, or to someone we're going to call Mr. Law today. So this person is called Mr. Law, all right? And when I say someone is married to Mr. Law, I mean that they are still bound up in the concept that they can appease God and they can get God's acceptance by what they do, by what they do. And by keeping the rules, thou shalt and thou shalt not do this and don't do that, some people are married to Mr. Law and they think that's how they can relate to God. Well, the Bible says that that's a bad marriage. And instead, we're going to see today where the Bible says there is another marriage. There's a completely different marriage. And you can be married to Jesus Christ. You can have the relationship with Jesus that is like a marriage and that you should strive for that relationship with Christ. Now, you have to understand he's using an analogy here. And if you miss the point of the analogy, you've kind of missed the whole point here. In other words, he's not necessarily saying something about marriage. Rather, he's telling us about the Christian life. And Paul uses the word law 28 times in this chapter. And as we read through it, I'm going to use this analogy of a marriage this morning. So Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law? Let's back up now. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to you who know Mr. Law? Okay, 
Let's put that in perspective. So Mr. Law has authority over a person as long as he lives. Okay? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And I don't mean because you strangled him in his sleep. Okay? But he leaves. All right? So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and it is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Now, before you think verses 2 and 3 are doctrine about divorce and remarriage, notice this. They're not. He only uses that as an example. So we keep reading through verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to Mr. Law... Through the body of Christ that you might belong. And that means in the sense of being married here. To one another. Now, who is this other that they speak about? To him who was raised from the dead. And we know that to be Jesus. We know that to be Jesus. And in order that we might bear fruit to God. In order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled... By our sinful nature, the sinful passion aroused by Mr. Law, there were at work in our bodies, um, we bore fruit for death. In other words, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from Mr. Law, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, I think... About everyone in this room probably had studied English grammar when they grew up. And you understood different expressions and uses of speech. Do you understand what a metaphor is? Most of you do, right? A metaphor is when you are taking one thing and compare it to another to make a point. So, if you make a mistake and you pay attention to the metaphor itself instead of the meaning, perhaps one of the most Famous metaphors in all of English literature is when the English poet John Doan wrote these words, No man is an island. No man is an island. Now, do you get the meaning of that? Do we understand the meaning of no man is an island? Well, if you said yes, you know what an island is, and you begin thinking of islands, which I do. I think of Hawaii sitting on the sand, you know, that kind of thing. Fun stuff, right? So you're thinking of these islands, where they are, what makes up an island. And you spend all of your time thinking about that, and then you miss the meaning of the point. You miss the meaning of the point. The meaning of the metaphor is that no person can live in isolation. No person can live in isolation. So here's another one. Actually, it's more of a simile than a metaphor. It says, some of you are familiar with this, I think. I think most of you may have heard this one, but like sand through the hourglass go the days of our lives. Yes, it is a soap opera. That is the theme to days of our lives. My grandmother was very fond of that show, and I heard this phrase every single day when I was living with my grandmother. Through, like sand through the hourglass go the days of our lives. Now, there's a meaning there, but you make a mistake if you pay too much attention to the hourglass, to the point of the metaphor, actually. You miss the meaning. That, now not, that metaphor is not about an hourglass and sand. 
it's a statement about how our lives keep going on and on and on, right? And I've said all to you to say this. If you read Romans chapter 7 and you pay attention and to what it says about marriage, you're missing the point about what it's saying about the Christian life. Even though I'm using the metaphor of marriage this morning, if you're focused primarily on the word marriage, you're going to miss the point. So pay attention. Now, I agree with John MacArthur when he says, uh, verses 2 and 3, that this passage has absolutely nothing to say about divorce and cannot be used as an argument from silence to teach that divorce is never an option for any Christian and only the death of the spouse give the right to remarry. So in other words, John MacArthur was saying that don't take verses 2 and 3 and say, well, that's what the Bible says about marriage. It's not the definitive thing about marriage here. What the Bible is teaching us in this passage is what it means to be a Christian. Before a person is a Christian, they are married to the law. And once they come to Christ, they are in a relationship with him and can be compared to a marriage. So don't get so tied up in the metaphor that you miss the meaning. So what's, what's our first point this morning? Well, we need to know that our marriage to Mr. Law, like I mentioned earlier, is a bad marriage. Our marriage to Mr. Law is a bad marriage. So let's talk about these two marriages. First of all, the bad marriage to Mr. Law. And before you become a Christian, you are in a relationship with the law. And when I say the law, do you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? In other words, I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. Okay? When I talk about the law, I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. I'm also talking about those thousands of other detailed requirements in the Old Testament about what we can eat, what we can't eat, how do we get clean, how are we unclean, the days of the week, uh, things of that nature. It's all encompassing here. There are so many of them. And before you become a Christian, most people are bound up in the idea that God accepts me by what I do. If I do good, I be good, then God accepts me. That's not the point here. But that's what it means to be married to the law. Understand that. When you are married to the law, if you do good, you follow the good, you practice the good, you're good. That's not what God is saying, though. He's saying that's, that's your relationship to the law. When you become a Christian and you're in Christ, that no longer applies. The old man law demands perfection. Old man law demands perfection. But guess what? He never forgives. The law never forgives. Mr. Law says, all right, here's a list of things that you've got to do every single day. And here's a list of things that you cannot ever do. And if you ever break one of these rules, buddy, I'm not going to forgive you. There's no excuse. There's no forgiveness. You just keep them. He demands perfection. The law demands perfection. Now remember, I'm not talking about marriage here, but ladies, wouldn't it be awful to be married to a man that all he ever did was make demands of you? Give you a list of things that you have to do today and give you a list of things that you can't do today? I know men are probably thinking, that's what my wife does to me. <laughs> well, that's not the metaphor here. 
But wouldn't that be awful? If that was what your marriage was about? About what you can do, what you can't do? No, it's a partnership, right? To make matters worse, what if your husband thought he was perfect? Some of us do. But what if he thought if he was perfect? Wouldn't that make that ten times worse? But that's what it means to be married to the law. It means because the law is perfect, you are required to be perfect. And there's no fault with the law. Understand that. There is no fault with the law. But there's a demand. Be perfect. Does God require us to be perfect? Sure he does. It is a requirement. But do we live up to that standard? Does he punish us for not living up to that standard? He loves us. He forgives us our sin. That's the marriage that I want to be in. I want to be in a marriage where I can freely do what I'm asked to do, but also know that I don't have to be perfect. She doesn't have to be perfect. I'm going to love her anyways, and she's going to love me anyways, even through my imperfections. Will I get in trouble from time to time? Oh, yeah. Will she get in trouble? Yes, but she won't think she is. But that's the point it's making here. When you're married to the law, there is no room for imperfection. There's no room. Because old man law condemns. He never compliments. How would you like to be in a marriage where you never get a compliment? It's rough. But here's the second reason this is a bad marriage. He condemns, he never compliments. And that is the nature of the law. The law always points out what you've done wrong. But never has the time or the energy to compliment when you do things right. Let me give you a modern day example. Have you ever been driving down the road and you look in your rear view mirror and see a police car behind you with its lights flashing? You know what that means, right? You're pulling over, right? When there's a police car behind you and its lights are flashing, you pull over. But well, when you pull over, you're looking in your rear view mirror and a state trooper or policeman gets out and walks up to a window and says, I want to congratulate you. What? I want to congratulate you. Here you go. Here's a gift card to your favorite restaurant. You have a good day. It's happened? I'm driving in the wrong areas. I'm driving in the wrong areas. Yeah, I bet. But, but here you go. He says, congratulations, and you're keeping the law today, so I just want to reward you for keeping the law. Unlike that situation, for most of us, it doesn't happen that way. Okay? But the only time you ever deal with the law is when you break it. You ever notice that? Anytime you deal with the law, it's because you break it, unless you're actually in the field of working in law. But for the most part, you only deal with it when you break it. Now, the law is there, but it condemns. It never compliments. And wouldn't it be terrible to be married to a man who only condemned you, criticized you, never complimented you? Ladies, can you imagine being married to a man who only ever said to you, I hate your hair. It looks ugly. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear from this when I get home. You look overweight. Ouch. What would you think? How about things like this? Honey, you look nice. That's a pretty dress. You look so pretty today. Your hair looks great. But that's the nature of the law. It doesn't compliment. So being married to Mr. Law is a bad marriage. And then you say, how did I ever get in that marriage in the first place? You wonder how you even got there. Because in the beginning, it seems great. In the beginning, everything is all lovey-dovey and all those kinds of things. And you, you forget to see what's right in front of your face. It's work. It's work. So you ask yourself, why am I even here? You didn't have anything to do with it. It was prearranged by your family, particularly by that family member named Adam. Know that. It was already predetermined by Adam. And remember him a few generations ago when Adam broke God's law and he entered into a relationship with that law that all of us are in by birth. In other words, you grow up prearranged in a marriage to Mr. Law, but you need to get out of it. How do we get out of it? Because it's no fun to be married to somebody who is no good. I heard a story about a man who was an awful husband. I know we've heard this story many times before. And he always criticized his wife, never showed her any affection, never gave her any gifts, came home from work, and he just plopped down with all of his stinky work clothes on and watched television. Never any real sharing, never any affection. And one day the Lord convicted him about it. Somebody gave him a book about how to be a good husband. And he began reading this book and said, You know, I need to do this. So one afternoon he took some clean clothes to work. And after work he took a shower, got cleaned up, put on cologne and smelled real nice. And on the way home, he stopped by the florist, bought some flowers, and stopped by another store and bought some candy. And instead of coming in the back door, he walked through the front door of his house. He rang the doorbell. And his wife opened the door, and there he was, all clean, smelling nice. And he stepped through the door, handed her the flowers, handed her the candy, put her in his arms, and gave her a Hollywood kiss. Well, she came up for air, and she thought she'd be pleased. He thought, I did all the right things. She's going to be pleased. And she broke down and wept uncontrollably. And he said, honey, what's wrong? She said, it's been the worst day of my life. This morning, the washing machine broke down and flooded the basement. Johnny broke his hand at school, and they had to put it in a cast. And your mother called this afternoon and said she's coming for a two-week visit. And now here you are at the front door, drunk as a skunk. I'll tell you, it's no good to be in a marriage where you don't get any support or love, or acceptance. Well, that's what it's like to be married to the law. And that's what it's like to be a cruel husband. So the whole point of this message is that I want to convince you, every one of you, to get out of this marriage. Get out of that marriage. Get out of this first marriage and get into a much better marriage. And here's the second marriage. We're going to talk about the second marriage. Our blessed marriage to King Jesus. Our marriage to Jesus. And here's a beautiful analogy. In the New Testament, the church is described by three words, all of them that start with the letter B. 
The church is called the body of Christ, just like a physical body with Christ as the head. Secondly, the church is described as a building with Christ, being the chief cornerstone, and we are living stones or living bricks. But the third picture in the New Testament of the church is the one we're using today. The church is the bride of Christ, and he is the groom. And it's like all of us, male and female, are the bride. And so, it's a beautiful analogy. And, you know, I think it's beautiful because when you are married to someone, you have that personal relationship to them. So you say, okay, how do I get into it? How do I get into that relationship? Well, obviously, you have to get out of that first marriage before you can get into that one. So here's the first thing I'd say about our blessed marriage to Christ. Mr. Law is dead. Mr. Law is dead. So we must die to him. The law is dead, so we must die to that law. So don't miss the one that Mr. Law has died, so you're free to marry again. But you first have to die to him. Look at Romans 7 again. When I read it a few minutes ago, did you catch what some people say and see as the breakdown in the analogy? For instance, in verses 2 and 3, Paul is saying that in a marriage when the husband dies, his widow can legally marry again. But then you look into the verse 4. He doesn't say that. He says that the husband, he doesn't say that the husband died. He says, so my brothers, you also died to the law. Now, I need to say that he infers that Mr. Law here has died, but I believe he has. If you want to write down a scripture reference, look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says that Jesus Christ took the law, the written ordinance against us. He took it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. But I want you to think about what I believe he's trying to teach us here. There's a teaching point here. Before a widow or a widower is free to marry another, not only must his or her mate be dead, but they've got to die to themselves to that first marriage. They have to die to that first marriage. And I've known some ladies who, when their husbands died, were still married to his memory. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let me point that out. There is nothing wrong with that. It just means you're not ready to move on. And there's no one and no thing that can tell you when that happens. It is different for everyone. But in order to do that, to accomplish that, you have to die to that first one. There was still... There was still an allegiance there, and there probably never are going to be free again to marry somebody else. So in a sense here, basically what I'm saying is they are still married to their dead husband. And I want to say that that may be fine, and it's not God's will for every widow to remarry, but for sure before a widow can consider remarriage, she's got to die to that first marriage. Dr. J. Vernon McGee had a broadcast for years called Through the Bible. Some of you are familiar with it. And he tells a story related to this verse of Scripture. He says he doesn't think it's a true story, and I don't either, but it illustrates this point. Years ago in Antebellum South, there was a wealthy man named Frank, a plantation landowner who was married to a woman with whom he had a wonderful marriage to. But Frank died in his 40s, and his wife was so heartbroken and couldn't bear the thought of being without her husband. So instead of burying him, 
She had his body embalmed and placed inside an airtight case right there in the house. Instead of letting go of him, she would sit there for hours on end looking at this dead corpse saying, Frank, I miss you so much. Frank, this is what I did today. Frank, what should I do about this? And finally, some of her friends convinced her saying, look, this is not very healthy. You need to go and travel. And, and so she left and she traveled to Europe. And in the course of her travels, she met another man and fell in love. And when the man asked, are you married? And she said, no, my husband's dead. He said, well, I want you to marry me. And she said, well, I'm not ready to marry you yet. There's something I've got to do. And so she traveled back to the plantation, walked in there where Frank was laid out. And she said, Frank, I love you, but you're dead. And the nicest thing I can do for you, honey, is to bury you. And so she buried Frank. And once she died to him and died to that first marriage, only then was she free to marry again. And that's the point Paul is making here this morning. That is the point he's making here this morning. The law is out of the way. The law is out of the way. Jesus has taken care of that. Jesus has taken care of that. But you know the problem with a lot of Christians is that, that they are still tied to the law. They are still tied to that law. And because this idea of moral goodness to be accepted by God is the most popular belief in America today. This is where we get tripped up as Christians. We're no longer married to the law. And you and I know that outside the church, if you go out there amongst people who aren't Christians, and you ask them, what does it take to go to heaven when you die? The vast majority of them will say, do good, be good. Keep the commandments, right? That's what it means to be married to the law, to a moral code. And you've got to die to that. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might, might, so that I might live for God. You're not ready to live for God unless you die to the law. A dead person no longer can be controlled by the law. Once you die to the law, it has no control over you whatsoever. We talked about that last week. Once you die, you don't go back to that old man. You don't go back to it. When you die to sin, when you become alive in Christ, you don't go back to that old man. Also know that the second marriage that I'm talking about this morning is a permanent union. We talk about what it means to be married to Jesus. And not only must you die to the law... But this is a permanent union. I think God wants every marriage to be permanent. And that's why when a husband and a wife stand up before a preacher or a judge, they usually say something like, till death do us part. This is going to be a permanent marriage. This is what the covenant you go into with your spouse. And I assure you, although in human terms there are divorces and there are marriages that end, your marriage, as it were, to Jesus Christ is permanent. Do you know what breaks up marriages? Divorce and death. And divorce is not possible here. When you are entered into a beautiful relationship of intimacy with Christ, 
and that could be compared to a marriage, there will be no divorce. There will be no divorce. Do you know why? Because it's against the nature of God. It is against the very nature of God. Divorce is not in his vocabulary. And that is why he says in the book of Malachi, I hate divorce. Now, I assure you folks, once you've entered into this union with Jesus, he is never going to leave you and he is never going to forsake you. And as the Bible says, he's not going to walk out on you. In other words, he's there. He's there with you. Divorce is not possible with him. You say, Pastor, I'm following you here in this little analogy thing, but isn't it true that there have been some people who have had relationships with Jesus and they walked out on him? Yeah. They, in a sense, divorced the Lord, so to speak. And why even though brother so-and-so who used to be so active in the church, used to teach Sunday school, used to tithe, used to sing in church, it looks to me that he walked out on Jesus and he divorced Jesus. My opinion is this. I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, you can wear a wedding ring and not even be married. Or you can be like me and lose them all the time and never wear a wedding ring. But I'm married. You know that I have a relationship to my wife. I don't need that little symbol. I should wear the symbol. I just have a bad habit of losing them. I promise it's not on purpose. I promise it's not on purpose. That's what he's saying here. I don't think they were ever truly united with Jesus. Those who claim to know Christ and go through the motions and then all of a sudden they stop. I don't think they were truly united with Christ because there is no divorce in that relationship I don't think they were ever truly united with Christ. And like I've said this before, the faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at first. It was faulty at first. They never were truly in a relationship with Jesus Christ because when you're in a relationship to Jesus and you're married to him, you can't walk out on him. And I'll tell you why. There's nowhere you can go to get away from him, even though we think we can try. There's no way to get away from him. A husband may walk out on his wife and she might know where he is, but folks, there's nowhere you can walk out on Jesus and where he can't find you. He's going to be right there with you. He says, okay, you can walk out, but I'm going to go with you. If you descend down into hell, according to Psalms 139, he says, I'm there. If you ascend to the highest heights of heaven, he says, I'm there. You can't get away from me. And that's why you'd better consider very carefully your commitment to Jesus Christ because it is a permanent relationship. Divorce is not going to happen. And also know this, death will never break it. Death could never break it. He can never break that relationship. And in this scenario, the groom can't die because he's already died. And when he came back from the dead and is alive forevermore. When we die to sin and alive in Christ, we no longer can die. What are we assured of? We're assured of this. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is like looking through a, con- a clouded mirror. It's like when you step out of the shower and the fog on the mirror makes it hard for you to see your reflection. It's obscured. But the Bible says that when we die, we will be face to face. So death is only going to sweeten the deal. Death, un- death only sweetens the deal with our relationship to Christ. Because we know that when we are in Christ and we die a physical death, we meet with him face to face. We meet with him face to face. And about this time, after I've been ranting and raving for the past couple months about sin, some of you are probably thinking, well, aren't you going to be pushing this marriage analogy a little bit less now that we're moving on? And does the Bible really teach it? Well, would you look at the scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and you don't need to turn there, but I'll read this to you. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is Paul talking about? I think there's more than meets the eye here. What is Paul talking about? This is a profound mystery, but he's talking about Christ and the church. He's not talking about our relationship to our spouses. This is our relationship to Christ. And it's a mystery, and I, I don't fully understand it. But when you become a Christian, you enter into a union, a relationship with Jesus, and that's like a marriage. But what are some other things about this marriage? Well, we receive a new name and a new family. We receive a new name and a new family. And isn't that what happens when a person gets married? You get a new name, you get a new family. I know there are some women who retain their maiden names. And I'm not going to argue with you about that because, yeah, we're not going to touch that. <laughs> but I'll just tell you I'm glad that most of you didn't. Why is that? Biblically speaking, when we become a Christian, we take on a new name. We take on a new life. We know the story of Saul Paul. We know that story. Paul took on a new name. He took on a new life. And that's what we are called to do. Each and every one of us are called to do that. So we receive a new name and a new family. We are also eligible for a rich uh, inheritance. We get an inheritance. And this was before prenuptial agreements, but in the Episcopal marriage ceremony, these words were still quoted. All my worldly goods I thee endow. All of them. When we become in a relationship with Christ, everything that I am, even though it wasn't mine before, it is God's. It is God's. Did you hear about the lady who said, oh, I love my husband. In fact, I worship the very ground his father discovered oil on. (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny. There may be some cases like that, but in truth, you married Jesus Christ because he loves you and you love him. And the fringe benefit is all the blessings that heaven will bring for us. Heaven is a fringe benefit. Pastor Martin preached that all the time. Heaven is not the goal for the Christian. Heaven is not the goal for the Christian. Heaven is a fringe 
benefit to our life of sacrifice to him. And finally, we also enjoy a fruitful union with Jesus Christ. The final benefit I want to talk to you about in your new marriage is that fruitful union with Jesus. Romans 7, 4. So my brothers, you also died to Mr. Law through the body of Christ that you might belong or be married to and to him who was raised from the dead. And here's the purpose of that union. In order that we might bear fruit to God. That's the point of the marriage, that we bear fruit to God. What does that mean? Well, let's take that analogy a step further. When a husband and a wife come together very often, the fruit of that union is their children, right? The very fruit of that union is their children. And that's what God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, I want you to become fruitful. He wanted them to have babies. He did. A man and a woman come together and the result of that marriage is fruit. Their children. The reason you were united with Jesus Christ in a relationship and that can be compared to a marriage is not just so you can be happy. Not so you just be happy or so that you can go to heaven when you die. The reason is Jesus is interested in producing some fruit in your life. He wants to produce fruit in your life. The two of you, both you, your husband, your wife, and your kids. He wants to pour into you. But we also know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no Mr. Law's child. There is no fruit there. There are no little law children from Mr. Law. There's no little law children. This is not produced in the law, but it is produced in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So all those things, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Those are all those things. And it takes the spiritual DNA of Jesus to do those things. And do you know why? Because Jesus is love. Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. Jesus is peace. Jesus is patience. Jesus is kindness. Jesus is faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And he wants to produce that in each and every one of our lives. So what's the difference between living under law and living released from law in relationship to Christ? The law of Texas says if you've got a small child, you must put him or her into a restraint in the car when you are driving. Okay. So what's the law do for us? We already know that. We know that when we realize that we're no longer bound to that law, that we are bound in Christ, that we receive our purpose for our place here on this planet. We understand what our job is. We are to marry ourselves to Christ and that relationship. And knowing that, knowing that, we could never get away from that relationship. And thank goodness, because I know some of us maybe have tried in our lives to get away from that relationship. 
But God will always be there. And he'll be right there when you're ready to pick it up and say, I apologize, Lord. I have not been living my life for you. I have not been doing what your statutes have told me. But Lord, here I am. And he is right there to welcome you with open arms. Every time. So we cannot be afraid. We cannot be afraid to get away from Mr. Law and enter into that new marriage which we have through our relationship in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you that you love us. And in turn, Lord, you provide a path for us to love you. Lord, we don't always get it right. We're not always perfect. But you provide a path for that too as well. Lord, we may never understand why things are the way they are. But when we put our faith and trust in you, we can achieve and understand all things. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we have a relationship to you that could never be broken. Even when we don't deserve your grace and your mercy, you bestow upon it onto us anyways because you love us. And that's the simple fact. You just love us. Sometimes we don't understand that love and we don't reciprocate that love. But Lord, I pray that as we go through our Christian lives, and you provide those opportunities for us to walk through and, and to experience that relationship with you. I pray that we do so, and we do so with happiness, with joy, with eagerness, faithfulness, having the peace of knowing that you will never leave our side. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We appreciate you. And Lord, we just want to thank you now for the future blessings that you will bestow upon us and this church. Thank you that we have the opportunity to be here freely. Thank you that you love your people. And all of God's people said, Amen. Mike, will you pull up the doxology, please? Dave is not feeling well, and so we want to continue to pray for him. His back is kind of tweaked, so he went home a little early, but... And I know a lot of you have come to me today and told me some of your ailments. I want to pray for you too. I know that physical harm and those kinds of things, it kind of drags us down. And I know there's many other of you in a situation that it's hard to handle. And you're struggling. But just know this. You have a family here. You have friends here. You have people that want to come alongside you and help you. Because that is our purpose here, to love on one another, to love together in the unity and the body of Christ. So I want us to remember that. And I was seeing this this morning. I want you to think about those whom we serve. We serve each other and we serve a risen God. And we're so thankful for that blessing. Let's sing this this morning. Praise God through
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.